the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Laren Alta. Laren is a soul guide, a shadow diver, and a spiritual teacher, and she facilitates workshops and retreats and one-on-one intensives that help women emerge from their shadows and live from the center of their soul. I was excited to record a conversation with Laren because we've had several good ones and we share many of the same ideas on the shadow, healing from both personal and cultural trauma, and grief work. To be honest, with this interview, it was really nice to just sit back and hear someone else speak so well to my own thoughts and experiences on these things. I spoke with Laren online. She was at home in Seattle, Washington. So, Laren, what identities do you lead with? It's, it's an interesting question because I, I think I was raised very much to think of myself as a Black person first and later came into my identity as a woman second. Mm. Um, and as a Black woman, I, as a Black person, a Black woman first, but Black above and, and above all things. And for a long time, a lot of my values were centered on my identities. And as I got older, I realized that even though I'm Black and a woman and American, which is an identity that is true, so true in every part of myself, but doesn't get named, um, and grew up middle class, upper middle class, all these, these things that positioned me, that when I came and led with my identities, it didn't really have anything to do with my values. And so I was building relationship based on blackness or class or education or all of these things that I were centered to my identity, but they, when we got down to it, we didn't have the same values. Hmm. So I don't really lead with my identities as much as I have in the past. I really am very intentional now about leading with my values, which cuts across and sometimes concentrates the identity, but, but it's not as center as it used to be. Mm. So what values do you lead with? Um, I really value the truth Mm -hmm. (laughs) above and beyond all things. And sometimes the hard truth, the truth that's uncomfortable, the truth that doesn't want to be named. um, I'm usually the person who will ask the question that people want to know the answer to, but don't want to actually ask themselves or who wants, who names the thing that needs to be named. And, and I find that that tends to separate uh, me from a lot of people across all of my identities. So I value the truth. I value reverence for people who have come before, people who are teachers, people who are uh, informed this moment, um, and love. I think those are the, probably the three strongest um, I did values for me right now. Mm, truth, reverence, and love. 
Mm-hmm. I'm down with that. I'll sign up for that. As you were talking <laughs> about uh, valuing truth above all things, of course, this is a, a value that that we both share. We've both talked about in many ways, and I've observed you, and I think you've observed me perform that value. You know, mm-hmm. enact it and embody it in like really publicly uncomfortable ways. So from one yeah. kind of um, sometimes strident truth teller to another, not that I perceive you as strident, but you know, these things it. get thrown on <laughs> us. Yeah. Uh, do you get lonely? Mm. Carmen, thank you for asking that question. <laughs> it makes me teary that mm-hmm. you asked that. It really does because I I don't know if I get lonely, but I definitely feel alone sometimes mm-hmm. in it um, because it's so people would rather be sweet and nice and play on the surface. I'll, I'll give an example. I um, sent out a, a letter to my community. I send, try to mail them a letter at least once a week, sometimes twice a week. And this letter was about uh, growing up with, with abuse in my family and the abuse that I had suffered as a child and, and what I had learned from it and how I had grown from it and how healing became center to my life because I knew that I couldn't live. And it was also shrouded in secrecy and, um, agreement, like silent agreement, secrecy and silence essentially, Mm -hmm. which is part of why truth is so important to me. And I wrote this letter to my list and saying this, and this is how I became a healer. And this is why I started seeking healing for my own healing first. And I got a response from someone who had been in my community for years saying, um, I don't, I'm tired of people in, this, in the internet self-help world always having to reference their past, their trauma, in order to feel, um, to know their, their, their power. And um, I, I've, it just isn't working for me anymore. You should look up Melanie so-and-so, I forgot her last name, who is also a Black woman and is the executive of an investment firm and also married to the man who created Star Wars. So multi-billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> okay. She said you should watch her TED Talk for inspiration because she came from beginnings that I'm sure were worse than yours or mine, not actually knowing anything about my beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so instead of, and she doesn't delve into her past at all. She just focuses on having, creating a wonderful present. Mm. and I responded thank you for sharing and if you don't value looking into and learning from and healing from your past you're right we're probably not aligned anymore so I welcome you to unsubscribe if that feels good to you Mm -hmm. because I'm not interested in um, living in the past being obsessed with the past making the past an excuse but I'm also not interested in avoiding or ignoring or pretending that there's not truth there that we can all learn and heal and grow from. That's the center of basically everything I value and believe. So um, it doesn't feel, I didn't feel lonely when I got that email, but I definitely felt um, it feels alone sometimes being like the only person who says the emperor has no clothes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I feel that. I hear it. It like literally I can feel it in my throat and in my heart. Like it just constricts uh, because yeah, it just, I, I, I personally find it 
the aloneness or the perception of aloneness is physically very tiring for me. And I've had this feedback. It's funny because in one of the previous episodes of the podcast, I was speaking with Aftab Erfan, who does deep democracy work. And so she's seen me have these physical responses uh, because in deep democracy, um, you, you give voice to your view and then you either people either move closer to you or farther away. And so I've like literally cleared the room a couple of times and the, the, the shaking of my thigh muscles, is just like, it's so much that sometimes I feel like I can't stand. Um, And, you know, two days after a deep democracy event, I, I feel like I've run a marathon because my Mm. body holds it. So this is interesting um, because you're, you're, you're pointing to something, I think, an interest both you and I share about um, lineage mm-hmm. and legacy, kind of the the understanding where we've come from and how we, you know, either pivot or stand in that current and move forward as well. And, yes. and so I'm very curious, um, as I've been reading about, you know, epigenetics and trauma, mm-hmm. um, uh, and maybe I should just clarify that for people who aren't totally sure, just to make sure everybody knows what I'm talking about epigenetics, meaning when the external environment like alters our gene expression at the molecular level so that, you know, and then that becomes an inheritable condition by the next mm-hmm. generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also, um, not just the the DNA of it, but also like transgenerational transmission of trauma, like where a survivor externalizes their trauma onto a child. And, you know, like Holocaust survivors might have done with their children and residential school survivors might have done with their children, et cetera. So there's like all of these things that happen where we grow up with hurt people and they hurt us. (laughs) And so we have already, we're sort of physically predisposed. I read something that about 30 or 35% of a person's um, factors that predispose us to PTSD are genetic. So like, so we've already got that by being physically related, you know, having that bloodline, but then we also have (laughs) re-traumatization that happens, you know, and it often comes up as we're trying to heal. So what I'm saying or how I'm linking this to being a truth teller is that sometimes the very thing that has helped us heal enough to tell truth that enables us to do it publicly sets us up to be (laughs) re-traumatized as we (laughs) go through it. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm just sort of curious. I mean, that's like a thought I throw out there (laughs) Mm -hmm. in your work, you know, you, you, uh, coach, uh, people and, and, um, and I'm curious, how does lineage, or legacy, the thoughts around that inform how you work with people, especially since you started by saying one of your your lead identities is black. So if your lead value is truth, I imagine that that's a very potent um, combination for your clients. Well, in a sense, so and so that's the part of it. Whereas even though it's my lead identity as my personal identity, it's not the center of my work at all. Mm. My racial identity is not the center of my work um, at all because I'm interested in in deeper truths. And in the Mm. sense that race is a social construction, class is a social construction, nature is a, I mean, um, nation is it, all these things that we are living inside of, but have made up also. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so it's not something I lead with at all. It's something people know and experience with me, but it's not something like I, I don't do racial justice work uh, mm. at all. I'm really interested in helping people heal and individually and in heal- healing individually, they are healing the whole. Mm. Um, it's, it's interesting because I think there's this um, overlap that doesn't get named often in the sense that people either are either or are healing individually or healing the whole. And there, there's this place of overlap where it means taking responsibility for yourself and the collective and not just one or the other. Mm-hmm. And for me, lineage is very much about that because spirituality, and I think this, this is part of where it gets uh, a bad rep, is it can be so much about navel gazing Mm-hmm. about me and my life and my, you know, whatever, that it doesn't actually go beyond you. Or it can be so much about heal the world and kumbaya and social justice activism that's externally focused that it never impacts you. Mm-hmm. I know tons of, or maybe not tons, but I know enough executive directives of real executive directors of really powerful nonprofit organizations who are toxic to their staff, who are <laughs> abusive to their staff, but doing great work in the world. Mm-hmm. And people who are doing great healing work and going to all the retreats and reading all the books and doing all the things, but can't talk to their neighbor who's of a different religion or uh, help feed someone who's homeless without mm-hmm. demonizing them because they might be on drugs. You know, so right. it's, so I'm interested in, in the overlap. And I think lineage um, is all about that. Because if you really own and honor your lineage, you realize that you have all of the things that you're trying to heal externally in your family line, in your mm-hmm. bloodline, in mm-hmm. your, the lineage that you carry, that you were born into, and that you intentionally claim. And so for me, it's about really honoring the, all of it. So I'll, I'll give an example from my own personal life. I know a teeny tiny microscopic part of my biological family. And my biological family is very small. And so I, I am one of two children from my mother and father. My mother is one of three children and she, neither of her siblings had kids. My grandmother is one of two children and her brother had five kids. So they're my second cousins. And then my great-grandfather, we don't know anything about his siblings or anything. So really, I know, and I don't know my paternal side at all. So really, I only know one quarter of my family, and I have no first cousins in that quarter. Mm -hmm. No first cousins, one sibling with the same parents, and a few second cousins. So for me, lineage has also been about claiming family, owning the family that I do have, honoring them, but also claiming family that um who have raised me in different ways as well so not necessarily the bloodline exactly exactly okay. so the bloodline that i'm close i'm close to and i'm and i honor them with much reverence and love my mother my grandmother my great-grandmother and great-grandfather have been incredibly influential in my life in all kinds of different ways um, but I was also raised in Seattle, Washington, which doesn't have a very large African-American community at all. 
and I was raised by my mother and her community, which we call the village of people who are all transplants from the South, who were in Seattle, who didn't have any community or family. And before any of them had children, decided to raise their children together as if we were a biological family. And that is exactly how I was raised for decades. Wow, that is fascinating. So we have, um, you and I have spoken in the past and uh, listeners to the podcast will be familiar with the the concept of um, having three lines in mm-hmm. our lineage, the bloodline, the milk line, and the storyline. So the bloodline, obviously, who are related to the milk line, those that have nurtured us. And it sounds like you had a really remarkable milk line. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so fortunate. So now you're pointing to something, though, that's very interesting about um, like ancestry recovery, because for so many people, certainly the African-American community, definitely the First Nations and Native American communities um, have been so displaced and the tracks deliberately, mm-hmm. you know, brushed away behind you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for those of us who are settlers, um, you know, people often don't leave their homeland if things are going real good. Mm-hmm. And so we've been cleared or, you know, something has occurred and, you know, we've internalized that oppression. We go other places. Lots of times we don't, you know, my ancestors probably didn't even want to bring with them their bloodline. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so it's really difficult to trace the genealogy and, and that can be a very, um, I don't know, that that can, that can take a lot of energy and be quite emotionally daunting to try to piece together our bloodline. So the milk line can become uh, perhaps a place of, you know, nurture and comfort and even surrogacy. But it sounds like you have, you kind of were born into it. And I'm, I'm just, I just, I'm like kind of speechless about how fortunate that is. Like what an amazing, what kind of conditions needed to happen in that place. I mean, just, yeah, that, that these people all came together and decided to do that is such a wonderful thing. How do you think that, uh, set your path in motion? Oh, oh, in so many ways. I, and it's, and I, I, I feel speechless by the way you just framed that because it's true. It's, it's, um, as I said, my fam, my biological family is very small and we were the only three in my biological family in Seattle. So I had some in, in LA and then I don't know the rest of my family. So, uh, so since birth, these, and I would have had, I, I would call them my brothers and sisters. We call each other brother and sister. Mm-hmm. So I had seven brothers and five sisters in this village, as we called ourselves the village. And the parents were referred to as auntie and uncle, which is mm-hmm. carried down from very, I mean, I'm sure a lot of cultures in the world do this, but I know it through the African-American lineage and the African lineage where you call any elder, your auntie or uncle. Mm-hmm. So, um, we were literally raised together, um, not just holidays, but before school care, after school care. Many of us shared the same before and after school care. Many of us some ended up going to the same schools. We ended up going to, we, I mean, we all went to the same church for the most part. We all um, did everything. And a lot of them were, were single mothers as well. Mm. So there was this um, reliance on each other 
um, that, that could have been identity-based, that could have been, yes, it was very important that because we were all Black in the city that wasn't at all very Black, that we could have that concentration of culture, but also because they had similar, all the parents at least had similar educational values, similar mm-hmm. uh, goals for their children's um, position in the world, similar goals. So it was about community and collective support and strength, but it was also about um, giving giving us people that we knew loved us and we knew believed in us and we knew had a vision for us and we knew could support us. And, and the, the class piece is important for me to name because all of the adults in the village were college educated, at least had an undergraduate or a graduate degree. At least they were all prof- working professionals, some of them business owners. Some, some, there was only one married couple. So, mm-hmm. and, and there were maybe, I think, six families. Mm-hmm. So one uncle, his name, Uncle Tommy, was basically the surrogate father for all of them, <laughs> all mm-hmm. of the children. <laughs> the only real father figure I had until my mother remarried when I was 16 mm-hmm. who would who, and he and my mother wasn't a spanker but he was so he, if I was at his house and I did something wrong I that's how I got punished <laughs> I mean you know but but he was he was um one of the most important people in my life mm-hmm Mm. So you know about, I mean, it's, it's just so interesting. It's like you're, you were so fortunate to grow up with people who, whether they had the language for it or not, because it was a different time and place. So mm-hmm. the, the language of trauma and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think it was probably in the 80s when um, Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart, the Lakota professor, talked about historical trauma. Mm. So they had some kind of either you know, education or intuition about how important the support system was in terms of, you know, creating conditions for healing and sort of cultural healing. Did you have, um, you mentioned going to church, were there like cultural healing practices? Was church and religion part of, um, you know, how, how you got onto the spiritual path? Hmm. Mm, yes and no. Um, there were cultural healing practices. And, th- and the reason I keep naming that we were this Black community in a very white Seattle is because that alone could be traumatizing. Yes. Being, mm-hmm. And most of us went to private school. And even in our public school experiences, we were often the only Black child in mm-hmm. our class. Mm-hmm. So that was very isolating, very traumatizing to be so isolated. Mm-hmm. And then, but our church that we grew up in was, is African American, African Methodist Episcopalian denomination. So it was a predominantly black church in this very white city. So that alone was a healing practice mm-hmm. to be able to have traditional songs, traditional African-American songs, traditional African-American culture where someone might be a postal worker out in the outside world and not valued by the outside world, but could be a deacon or a minister or an usher and seen as valuable and important in that world. So even though it wasn't specific religious rituals or practices that we did in those, the church environment, honoring of who we were as whole people Mm -hmm. was something that we grew up with and saw that example. So Mm. 
yes. Um, and and then my own personal path to healing, no, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> because even though it ha- it was, and the Black church has served as an institution for, for centuries of, of community building, but the ministers that I grew up with weren't very good at ministering. They weren't very good at opening up a conversation actually about God or the soul or spirituality or a personal relationship with the divine. It was more about, from my perspective as a child and even now as an adult, about the culture and the community and the, what mm. we built outside of that. But I was so hungry to know more about God that I, my best friend and I would ask questions in, in Sunday school, like, so you know that Bible verse that says, husbands obey your wives? We don't really agree with that because our moms are amazing single women and we don't see anybody. So tell us why that's important. You know, like, right. Or I asked a Sunday school teacher one because we were at church every Sunday and Sunday school. Right. Um, if you don't say amen at the end of a prayer, does it still get to God? And one of my teachers said, no, it's like a stamp. You can't really stamp the prayer without a... I was like, that's ridiculous. I was a child and I still knew that was ridiculous. So it didn't nourish my spiritual world, but it started a conversation. It, it piqued my curiosity. It said that it's okay. It validated that there was more to life than what meets the eye. And I think that's what opened the door. But did it actually give me any answers? Uh, not so much. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so if we follow the storyline and bring it to present day, what would you say is the basis of your personal relationship to spirit or, or however you conceive of that spirit, soul, the divine? What's mm. the language you'd use for that? My personal relationship is communion, mm. it's devotion, and it's surrender. I, I went through a period because once I started, once I left uh, Seattle and moved to Atlanta for college and started really expanding my language and conversation and understanding of the sacred and the divine and God, I, I morphed my language. I stopped saying God. I started saying spirit you know, or the universe eventually. And now I've returned to saying God. And, I, and for me, God means all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's my first language of really relating to that. Um, and and I got I what I consider spiritually arrogant. Mm. I I got where I was like, oh, I got this. I didn't refer to God. I didn't defer to God. I didn't uh, surrender. I thought I knew more than I did, and it often got me in a pickle. <laughs> was it? <laughs> it wasn't working for me. But it was there was this ego. And it's not that I thought I was better than anyone. I just didn't pray. I just mm-hmm. didn't um, ask for help. I just didn't turn anything over. I just wanted to be in charge. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think part of that is like, so you went back to Atlanta mm-hmm. uh, and you're kind of in a different milieu. And mm-hmm. do you think any of that kind of made you feel, I guess I'm just wondering if there was a, a kind of, insecurity mm. that might have led you to kind of get the white knuckle knuckle grip of control because <laughs> there's mm. you know like i don't know do you think that's like partially a trauma response do you think that's or do you think that's just immaturity i think it was both i mm. I, I think it, i don't i don't think i was in, i didn't feel insecure 
I think I felt um, knowledgeable. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Okay. You know, like, oh, like that the, the, the buck stopped here. Like I, it could end with me, that I didn't have to refer to, rely on anything bigger than me. And, mm. and even though theoretically I may have not thought, that, I would never have said that at the time. Right. But in retrospect, n- now I'm like, oh, no, you just got cocky. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, okay, uh, this process of really turning it over and surrendering. Mm-hmm. And once that happened, I could really, I could see and feel the shift in my life because it wasn't, I didn't need to have all the answers. I didn't need to know everything. And my work changed, my life changed everything changed when I could remember that I was already held and taken care of and I wasn't the container. <laughs> so can I ask you, how yes. did God, how did God um, show you that you were already held and carried and that you were not in fact in control or even that knowledgeable? Oh, Carmen, there's so many ways. <laughs> there's so many ways. But I, I'll give you an example. Because Great. the other piece is I'm very strong-willed. I'm very opinionated. I'm not very apologetic. I'm not a people pleaser at all. Mm-hmm. I don't know if any of those words resonate with <laughs> you. I'm like, hmm, hmm, wow, how's that working for? Oh, yeah. Okay, you know, yeah, so, I get and, it. And that feels good. That that's like my nature. My mother said, I, I, "says I have been bossy my entire life." I'm just, it's, I'm just, it's just who I am. So, I dropped out of college twice. The first time I dropped out of college, I went to, uh, I say, I went home. I saved my money and then left and went to India, Nepal, Thailand, and France, and just traveled the world by myself at at 20 years old. Mm. I turned 21 in, in India, and. I went to Nepal first. After, I went to Thailand, then I went to Nepal, and I trekked in the Himalayas for three weeks. I went to I trek to Annapurna base camp, and had never trekked before. But you know, I was like, I want to go do this, so I'm going to go do it. And I was trekking. My guides had gone ahead. My guide and my porters had gone ahead, and I was standing on the side of the mountain. And I looked. I heard what I sounded like popcorn. And I looked up and I saw these like enormous snow, ice, boulders rumbling down the mountain. And I said, oh, I should take out my camera. This looks like an avalanche. This is fascinating. And then I was like, Laren, this is not Disneyland. You're not at um, Thunder Mountain or whatever it's called. (laughs) You better run, girl. So I like dropped my bag. There were two porters behind me who weren't with me at all. I don't know who they were. And I followed, like, we're running down the side of this mountain. It's a narrow path. Running down this narrow path, boulders, ice is just flying. And if you fall, there's a ravine on the other side. So if you miss a step, you will fall into the ravine. And there are holes in the snow. So you have to be, that you can't see from the surface. So sometimes, which is fine if you're walking, you can pull yourself out. But if you're running, you have, you know. Wow. And then I... I followed one, I don't know where one of the people behind me went, but one went into this tiny cave, tiny cave that was only room for two of us. And I snuck in there and we both slipped in and then the snow came over. We could see it because it was like enough that we could see, it didn't bury us in there, but we could see the snow go over. To me, that was a way to know I was not in charge. (laughs) 
I was not in charge. And when I caught up with my, my guide later, he said, I'm so glad you ran the other direction because if you had run with me, there was only room enough for one of us in the hole that I fell. <gasps> wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you come to a place where you're recognizing like, oh, okay. <laughs> so God is trying to speak to me mm-hmm. and um, is needing to, you know, speak louder. Mm-hmm. But now I'm, I'm listening. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you are listening, what is your spiritual practice like? So there's some concentrated practices I do every day. I meditate for at least one to two hours a day. Uh, I do have a Vipassana practice, which is from, uh, it was, it's originally, it's, it's said to be the original practice, Buddhist, the original meditation practice of the Buddha uh, for, for, for liberation. So I, I, which has actually transformed my life. So that's part of my devotional practice. I also honor my work as my devotional practice, uh, one of my devotional practices, because it is doing what I was born to do. And I'm Mm. showing up as a vessel for the work that I do. Um, And the other piece is being super keyed into my intuition. Mm. Because I think that the intuition is the way that God also speaks. Um, And so trusting my intuition above my mental intellectual analysis or verification or justification is a way to be in devotion and in communion and in connection with, with the sacred, because it's a language. I think that, I think God speaks in, in all ways. So I'm also clairsatient. So I get a lot of messages through my physical body. Mm-hmm. I get a lot of messages uh, mentally, uh, but not thinking. Just right, just like clear cognizance, just that knowing just comes to you. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. Um, and so trusting that, because part of that spiritual arrogance was like needing evidence, needing hmm. concrete evidence when I was like, oh no, I know I need to do this, but where's the proof? Where's the right. and, and not just trusting um, the process. And so that's, that's how it looks on a micro level. And that shows up in really beautiful and bountiful ways where life can just rise to meet me. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to use my might or my muscle to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. It's interesting what you say about um, spiritual arrogance and claircognizance. I actually have the inverse of that where mm. my claircognizance has been so strong and I've not needed proof. And I think other people have taken that as a spiritual arrogance. Mm. And then I spend a bunch of time sort of trying to retrace and like try to find like, and so I'm trying to corroborate my own intuition a lot of times. So I think sometimes that's why I um, over explain things. But anyway, so uh, what would you like your legacy to be? Hmm. love and truth and i think truth only happens with love real truth that's that's what i want my my legacy to be that people feel more emboldened to tell the truth mm. to themselves first and if other people find out that's great but to tell themselves the truth first and the truth for me ultimately always boils down to you are perfect. 
Mm. You are love, you are sacred, you're divine, you're whole, you are everything good. And that there's nothing to fix, there's nothing wrong, there's, you're not a mistake, and that you're just continually unfolding into more and more of yourself. Mm. Now, a part of the truth, of course, is remembering. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I, I, and my clients and what I see in the world is that along with remembering, uh, comes a lot of grieving and, mm-hmm. and a need to mourn and that sort of thing. So I'm curious, like in your journey and even today, or maybe you could even give us a bit of an evolution. How do you personally cope with grief and rage when you, when you look at the world or where, when you're working uh, on your own healing journey, how do you cope with grief and rage? I love this question. So it, the question itself gives so much permission and I'm really grateful of that. So the household that I grew up in, not the village, but my actual house, family house, um, there was a lot of room for positive, comfortable emotions. And I grew up with someone who has a mental illness that was undiagnosed. And that took up all the rage and the anger. And so I didn't have permission as a child to feel angry, to feel sad, to um, feel a full range of emotion. And it wasn't until I became an adult that I really, well, initially I just dropped into depression. The, when, I, the fir- when I first year away from home, I dropped into a dark, deep depression because it was the first time I could feel all my feelings mm. and they had nowhere else to go but down. So grief and rage have become, I, I wanted to know them. I wanted to know my own anger. I wanted to know my own pain because I had a lot that I'd just swallowed and made good and made nice. And part of what catalyzed my breaking was after this deep depression between 19 and 25. So for five years of my life, I had someone in my life die every three to nine months. Jeez. Oh my God. It, it was um, devastating because every single person who passed died from something un- anticipated multiple car accidents, multiple drownings from people who could swim, um, diseases, um, surgeries. So nothing, they were, they weren't high risk, violent lifestyle, nothing that you would be like, you know, even have a anticipation that it was a possibility. Mm. And, and that completely transformed my relationship to grief because I was in so much pain and it kept rewounding. It kept rewounding. And so I knew I had to figure out how to heal. And part of the first step was for me was giving myself permission to be in that much pain, mm. mission to grieve. My, my parents divorced when I was two. I haven't spoken with my father since I was three. I haven't seen him. And so I know that there was a huge sense of loss there and a huge sense of grief, but because I grew up in the house where, where there was no room for that grief. I didn't know what to do with it. And so when, it, when this sense of loss came back around, 
starting at 19, I had to just make space for it. Um, and so that's been such medicine for me to honor that. And once I learned how to honor it, it would pass because I, what, and I, what I was left with was the gift that nothing is permanent. No one is permanent, which is the, the biggest truth of it all. But if I had just kept suppressing my grief, I never would have gotten to that. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you, what are some of the specifics that help for you with grief? Is it somatic? Is it community? Is it ritual? Is it, you know, is, is it wakes? Like what actually in some specifics have you found most healing for you? All of it. Mm. All of it. I need to, um, because for me, it's couched in the understanding that there is no beginning and there is no ending. And it's that, so for example, when I was 19, uh, the first three people passed away within six months, everyone every two months, two of those three were 19 too. Mm. So for me, it was this sense of, of, um, nothing is like I could die tomorrow mm-hmm. and learning that to how to talk to my ancestors, how to go in nature and really see the in, infinitude, but also like that leaves that fall compost into the ground and, and become soil for something else. Like really seeing that process happening mm-hmm. helped me connect with, yes, this person may not be here in the flesh, but they, but I can still connect with them. They're not gone. There's nothing that, um, they haven't disappeared into the ethos. Like I can, I can still have a relationship with them. And then movement, dance, yoga, breath work has been so crucial for me to actually move with my breath, mm-hmm. connect with that part of my, myself, but also the universe that I'm literally inhaling my ancestors. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's the macro and the super micro connecting consciously with what's actually happening. Um, and I worked with Saban Fusome who recently passed away, mm-hmm. who's a, a, an amazing teacher from Burkina Faso who has done grief rituals for decades. And working with her was, was really instrumental to ritualize the grief, grief mm-hmm. work ritualize anger, ritualize sorrow, and not to just bury it and suppress it and or numb it and dismiss it, but to honor it as master teachers. And now I see that grief and death and my rage have been master teachers for me because they're full expression of truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You speak my mind, Laren. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same about you. Yeah, there's there's a lot of love mm-hmm. and a lot of truth here. Mm-hmm. This is good. Thank you so much for sharing. I feel very enriched, but also like this has been good food. This was like a really great meal. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very honored. Isn't she awesome? Who needs a goat? I think you should contact Laren. But only if you're ready to go there. Because she's not showing up for your playing around with spirit. She's showing up to praise what is. What is true. 
about your soul and help you praise it with honesty and sincerity and revere it in front of God and everybody. So, you know, be serious with yourself. You want to bring forth meaningful work and life from your truest and most loving place, then you can find uh, links to Laren's information in the show notes on my website. Today, I want to give a shout out. Damn, where's my paper? Shout out to listeners in France, home of my heart, resting place of my dear guide, Mary Magdalene. Merci beaucoup, mes amis en France. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development course. Registration reopens in June 2017. I'm very excited uh, for the next cohort. You can hop onto my website and sign up for my newsletter to find out about that. While you're there, check out the information on my wilderness quests happening in May and August of 2017. You and me, 12 days in the mountains, getting to the truth. All the details are at carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.